Hey friends, welcome back to a special edition of the Smoke Signals podcast. I'm Justin Latta, and I'm going to be joined on this episode by Adam Lieberman, who most recently was the Media Relations Director for the Akron Rubber Ducks. Adam has worked with the Akron Arrows when they were called that, the Akron Racers, the Atlanta Braves, uh, and a few other stops on the way. By far one of the best people to work in the industry. Like any industry, you come across people who are always great to work with, but getting to catch up with Adam and talk baseball and other things every time I made the trip down to see Akron play was always one of the highlights of the trip. Uh, next time I go to Akron, it certainly won't be the same without Adam there. He is definitely one of the nicest people I've ever met uh, working in sports or writing about sports. Uh, we're going to talk to Adam about minor league baseball season being canceled and the ramifications of that, as well as the possibility of a few teams being contracted. Uh, we'll also talk about his career because he has a lot of interesting stories and experience. Uh, we'll also ask him what it's like to work in sports. So for anybody who may be listening uh, who's interested in getting into the field or knows someone who's interested in working in sports, uh, Adam has a lot of insight on that. So I'm sure he'll have some good advice on that end. Uh, so I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. Hi right, Adam, thanks for for joining me. Uh, I already recorded the uh, intro, so everyone already kind of knows about you a little bit. Uh, so, how are you doing, and and what are you up to right now? Well, I'm doing doing pretty well. Uh, you know, as well as can be expected in COVID 2020, and just uh, trying to hold the fort down like everybody else. Uh, you know, no minor league season, major league season just getting uh, sort of hopefully unfolded, and we'll see what happens with everything um preparing we have all kinds of new things for the official scores it's a whole new uh setup for us we'll be doing it mobily uh trying to get everybody up to date techno technologically wise new uh things mlb's introducing as well as trying to get all the protocols and things down that they'll need to do uh that's all come on recently uh, and uh you know otherwise we're <laughs> we'll see what happens in the sports world and, and how we all adjust it, it's just a um it's a crazy time and, you know, ho hopefully we'll be able to place games sooner than later. Yeah. The first scrimmage seemed to have gone well. So hopefully they can the bugs worked out before all the games start and <clears throat> all the pitfalls of technology are worked out before actual games start to get up, go on. And there's no. Well, that, on that end and then the first games end, I hope those guys don't get hurt you know who knows how the the prep period and how you're used to building up innings or or what you do but then you only have 60 games so at what point do you start pushing guys harder how much of the guys have been working out in the meantime it's all i, I mean a lot of questions that the indians are going to know that we don't know uh it's going to be one of those seasons where everyone's kind of kind of be in the clouds a bit front office wise even the the indians metrics folks who seem to know what's going on everyone's going to be a little bit uh, trying to figure it out. Uh, who knows? Slow starter people may be slow starter because of the weather, and that's not the case now. Or the balls will travel further at the beginning of the season now than they would typically. Or are the hitters still ahead, you know behind the pitchers? Who who knows where things are? It's it's in that way. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, you were still working. I mean, you were still working in baseball when the strike happened, right? The '94. Uh, I had not gotten into baseball at that point. But uh, I, I was uh, I was at oh, I was at Ohio U at that point. Uh, just and really, I mean, I remember it happening, and I remember particularly the the, the damage it did to Montreal. And 
you know, it was interesting later getting to work with Tom Glavin and talk to Tom because he was very much the source, the player uh, face. Tony Clark was the AL, Tom Glavin was the NL. And, but Glavin was much more in front of the, of the screen and just talk to him about how it, it appeared, how it came off, just how he, you know, what he had to go through. Even years later, people, I remember when I got there in 2000, still booing him or still not Tom Glavin fans because of him being the face of the players association during the 94 strike. So uh, it took a long time for people to get over that. Uh, of course the home run chase helped, but um, there's some bitterness right now. And then, I, I mean, even outside of COVID, who knows what happens at the labor piece after the end of next season. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure I want to look ahead to 2020 or 2022 and see if there's not a season there, what kind of damage that could go through. Um, do you see a lot of similarities in how things played out in the public with trying to negotiate? I mean, obviously, you know, virus aside, that was should have been the bigger deal, and it really felt like it sure. wasn't. But do you kind of see similarities than how it played out in the public with the the strike and just what you know from Tom and all that with what happened here? Somewhat, but I think there's different games you can play now with social media and different ways of getting um, your opinion or get things out or leak things or test the market on different, on different things. Um, I think the two sides are, are using the press and using press releases and, and that to really try to shape the, the narrative right now more than I think they did directly then um, but part of that may be just knowing how much gets out now or, or just trying to use the public uh, sympathies one way or the other. Uh, I mean, there's definitely similarities. I'm sure they probably would have done a lot of the same things back in 94. It just seems like right now it's it's as mean-spirited or, or not necessarily mean-spirited, but there's disagreements are as much as, as it's been since that time. And the difference then, though, is more coming off the collusion. So there was a much more of a distrust of the owners. I think there's always a distrust of the owners that kind of goes with it, especially until, you know, all the books are open, which will never happen. But um, there was, a, it just seemed to be, there was a direct distrust of current players in the game at that point who had been um, damaged by the owner collusion that had been two or three times over. And, and so there's a different kind of feel right now. It just really, in a lot of ways, the players got crushed in the last negotiating and they feel bitter about that more than in some ways the collusion type of aspect. Yeah, I thought some of that played out here with how bad the last couple of CBAs had been that this was really putting a strain on that with how weird these negotiations were. And I am really curious to see what the, the long-term impact is, but I'm also terrified to even think that if they don't get through even 60 games this year and then there's so much bitterness in 2022, what – if they don't have a season or there's a strike or something that how much damage that could really do to the sport. It's not even something I really want to think about to be honest. Well, I mean, this highlights it right here. I mean, this year, um, the, what I've missed, people ask me what I missed the most and you know, you don't really miss the travel or the crazy schedule and all that kind of stuff right away. What you miss is baseball is the, to me, the background noise, the soundtrack of the summer, I'm used to hearing it on the radio. I'm used to hearing Tom Hamilton's voice when I'm, you know, you're doing something in the yard or if you're in the car or the, um, you know, the STO broadcast, if you're inside and you're just in the background, it's just kind of part mm -hmm. of summer and part of how you grow up. And I, I've noticed that absence, I, that, that part of it missing. And 
and you longing for it. And baseball's got a unique situation where they're trying to work on their marketing. They're trying to work on featuring players. They're trying to change the way they're going. They have a unique time period that's all to themselves and to uh, not capitalize on that this year particularly. But, you know, if they have a labor stoppage in 2022, it could be devastating to a sport that, that loses market share all the time, uh, whether it was basketball at one point. I mean, football, of course, is what it is. But now uh, look at the in-road soccer is making. So uh, it, not to say baseball will ever fall off. I think some of those things are uh, slippery slope arguments. But it, it just you need to capitalize, particularly with some of the discussions we have now about in minority communities and some of that. This is a great time to re-engage uh, from RBI to other things and get baseball down to the grassroots and really get people working uh, to spread the game around. And it's a shame if, if they labor issues at the at the top level that can be worked out it's a question of richer richer mm-hmm. uh, yeah those are all really good points i noticed you did not say you miss pulling <clears throat> you did not say you miss pulling tarp i don't miss tarp i don't miss uh, rain delays i don't miss uh weekday uh april games in the minors when the weather's cold and no one's showing up yet. It's Monday or Tuesday, and there's like a hundred people in the crowd, and uh, you know the the guys are bundled up, and you're just hoping that the game doesn't go three hours. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't miss those. Um, but you know, you do miss the players. Uh, the Indians have always gotten a good, you know, at least the time since I've been in the system, uh, starting in 2013, have always got a good group of guys. It, it seemed and and knew what they were looking for in terms of leaders and camaraderie and. Uh, so you always like to be at the ballpark and, and be around them and um, that you, you miss that. You miss seeing the people like Shag Gross in the clubhouse and, you know, the, the stadium ops people and just the people you're used to, you know, that you see spend so many hours with that they become family. Yeah, this is a tough time for a lot of those people. I was what I was going to say about tarp pull, too, is how it's going to test how much people really miss baseball is if they were willing <laughs> to pull tarp just to get it back. That would be like the ultimate <laughs> Uh, bargaining chip. I bet they would. I bet they would. And, you know, right now you got people with the rubber ducks working concession stands and everything else for uh, amateur events and every, and all the other things they have going on there. Uh, and they, they would tell you, they'd love to be pulling tarp for uh, rubber duck games, even though it stinks. Cause that's what it's all about is having those games, those events. And that's why everyone signs up to, work the hard hours for the generally, you know, low pay opportunity cost of working in sports and, you know, to not have those. And then all these issues now with the, the minor leagues and uh, the general media market. And, and, and so in a lot of ways, a lot of these jobs are markets are flooded with people who worked in the sports industry who have nothing to go to right now during the COVID days. Yeah, that's a really, really unfortunate situation. That that should tell you too how much everybody misses working and working in baseball is that you know they're not they're missing those kind of things because they'd rather be doing that than nothing else. Uh, what do you what do you kind of think things are going to look like in minor league baseball after all this? You know, obviously we already had the situation with um, a lot of teams being potentially contracted in the future, and then now you add in this pandemic, and I, I'm kind of concerned that some teams financially just won't be able to operate without a season next year. Well, I think that's going to be the case. I think what baseball is going to get sort of what they major league baseball is going to get what they wanted in some ways uh, because of the COVID situation. It, it's a tough, you know, 
thing because it's a very complicated, it's not as simple as some of the other uh, black and white economic type uh, setups. You know, you'd think, well, if the team, Major League Team Boy needs a certain number of people or a certain number of players or teams, and yeah, sure, they should be able to do what they want. And I get that, all that, but it's about like with Dayton Moore, the KCGM was talking about on growing the game at the different levels and making people baseball fans and creating opportunities to see people play and play themselves and grow and get better in the game because it is one of those sports where there's a lot of people who develop later in, in, in different abilities. And you have the whole issue with stadiums and, and jobs and, and locales that are tied to um, the, the teams playing those games or even stadiums that are t- paid for by tax money or other renovation type things that would go, you know, unheated. And it, that's where it's a shame. I mean, I really do think they'll probably wind up contracting 40 or so teams. Um, you know, they may not really need them in the modern day analytics cut through the, the fat, so to speak. You, you see some of the more successful teams not needing as many teams. So maybe you do just need your four big, um, your high A, you know, your, your, your two A's, your double A and your triple A team to get by going forward. Um, but it, it's just not as simple as, okay, well, let's just cut the rest. And, and you know, especially because the, the unique civic ties and, and roots of the game. So, um, but I get, I get the dollar part of it. it. It's a complicated issue, but it's very unfortunate. I feel so bad for some of those markets, uh, you know, cause there's not as much money. That's, that's why a lot of teams, I know they're multi-million dollar teams nowadays, but a lot of the owners don't have stuff liquid, uh, it's invested in in other things to roll over over time and to have an affiliation be yanked from them and be in Binghamton, New York or some of these other places. It, it, it'll just do the franchise in and, and it'll be sad to see, you know, places that aren't near major league teams. I mean, if you think about all those cities that are near Atlanta, that Atlanta pulls from for the major league team, all those minor league franchises in there. And that doesn't mean those are going to go because those are some big cities, Memphis and some of those, but you know, there's big swaths of this country where there's not, you can't just hop in a car and drive, you know, three hours or less to a major league baseball game and, uh, or even to a triple or double a baseball game and to get rid of all the teams in Montana or some of that stuff. It, it does a disservice to the game. I think in the long run um, where you're trying to compete against everybody, but I also get if why pay for two other teams or so of players that you don't need and why should they have to suck up the dollars? I get that too. It's just trying to reform a system uh, to update it in a system that's unique. And in that way, it's going to hurt both public and the, both the um, workers and the public in that way. Yeah, for sure. I guess local economies are going to be affected by that as well. And, and, you know, you mentioned what Dayton Morris said. I've been advocating the whole time is I feel like it's going to be detrimental to their marketing and their ability to connect fans to people. I mean, you think about obviously Akron is always close, is close sure. enough to one, but Mahoning Valley is, you know, an hour, a little over an hour away. And I think about someone like Francisco Lindor playing in Mahoning Valley, even though he was there for a couple of days, but just in this example, you know, kids getting to see that. And then, you know, a couple of years later, he's in the majors and they have that connection and, remember him and you know they- well there's also a value in in, in uh, little kids going to those level games the intimacy 
uh, where they can learn it, where it's not the dollar cost for the families to get in that it is in Cleveland. And it doesn't mean you don't go to games in Cleveland, but there's a way to go if you're going to go for three, four innings till little kids can't, you know, whether the weather or their attention span, you don't mind going to Mahoning Valley and spending a couple bucks and grabbing a hot dog and explaining to the kids what's going on till that you lose them and take them home. And it's not, and so that's where I think you grow the baseball games. Dad, I want to go back to the baseball stadium. Okay, we'll go back there. And so maybe that happens when they're three, four, five, six, they get roots there and then they start going to some Indians games, but then they still, you know, live near Mahoning and start going to see, like you said, the new Lindor or the next, you know, Tristan McKenzie. And it's cool to be like, man, I saw them when they were 17, 18, 19 years old. And I mean, that's cool. Like that, that's, that's one of the neat things when for us who work in the minors to see everyone get excited about Daniel Johnson. And we're like, mm-hmm, we know, or uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Mike Clevenger. And everyone's like, Oh, where'd this guy come from? And you're like, well, he came up from Akron and he went to Columbus and yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's great that you guys are paying attention, but I understand they have 40 guys up there and they've got so many things that they're featured on that the writers and things up there, you know, that's why there are folks like, you know, IBI uh, that do such a great job covering the minors and why I think it's important um, more so than ever that, that that the spotlight's on the minors because of how many minor league players, because of the way the payrolls are structured, make it up to the majors, make contributions during the seasons now. I mean, there's guys who at one point you would never consider at spring training the way when I first started Atlanta, who would never get a chance in that year. You would all, probably all the minor leaguers only focus on a handful of five or ten that would have a chance. And and now, I mean, you better get to know a good half of your system because who knows, you know, who could get brought up. I mean, how many people in the major league squad a couple of years ago would have known who or worked with Aaron Savale or Zach Plesak at that point? to be ready, but these guys did. Yeah. I, well, I kind of wonder if there's like a kind of like a cost or like lifetime customer value study of what they're going to cut. If they cut minor league teams, like they have to think of all the money that's spent in there and how that might translate to their, you know, future spending, whether it's, you know, buying merchandise or going to games. Like I would think they've, they're big enough corporations or business at this point, they would do like a, customer analysis where they wonder how many people they might lose by making those cuts. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the, and that's the question is what's the balance, where do you balance the loss of spending at that dollar, you know, for players versus the long-term investment into the game, um, team marketing report or somebody like, I know they probably do have metrics and probably looked at it. And maybe that's part of the why they picked those particular markets, figuring that you get rid of Binghamton. Well, hey, you've got other markets nearby. They can pick them up, so to speak. I, I don't know what their, their rationale was. And, but it, it's just tough. You feel so bad. I mean, I can, I don't, Akron's not in danger, like you said, but having been there, you can, you can tell like if what you will, if you took away the rubber ducks, you, what, would be missing both for downtown what would be missing for all the people that work there with uh, full-timers the ushers the grounds people the um you know the nearby businesses and the, the even the civic things that are either done with the rubber ducks or they donate to or or, or whatnot so um the contribution it just would be a big hole i think a lot of times cities use their baseball team or a sports franchise, particularly if it's a downtown to help identify 
who they are. And, and when you see a, a place like Canal Park, you know, all done up nice and the banner on the side of the Mayflower and you come to the game. And, and if you're an Akron uh, area resident, you know, you, you feel good about the way your ballpark and your city is represented there. And it, it's just I'm not saying it's on the level of losing the Browns from from <laughs> Cleveland, but it does create a hole in the community. And some of those communities like Binghamton have been host, hosted teams for 60, 70 years. Do you think, obviously knowing, you know, what the minor league budget is, and obviously it's a lot spent towards workers and, and um, promos and things like that. So do you think that in the end, there are going to be some teams that just due to the pandemic that maybe weren't on the first chopping block for considering contraction in a market? Do you think the pandemic is eventually going to um, force some of those teams to close and add them into the equation? I, I do. I think the pandemic will add teams. I think there's some teams who probably were surprised or shocked to be on that initial list that have done things or mitigated it in the meantime. And you may get some of the teams that have suffered due to COVID that sl- that change with those teams that were on the initial list as far as who get cut. Um, it definitely will stress teams going forward. So, you know, if they have an uh, unsuccessful season a year or two from now, or if the COVID leaks into a f- next a future season or you know, the enthusiasm for baseball, let's say at the major league level is uh, because of labor issues and people don't want to come out and see the game. That may be enough to do in those teams that somehow stagger through this that aren't in a position where, where to rebound. Um, no, I, I just think that kind of what the majors were looking apparently to cut the 40 teams or so to well, from that original proposal that, that was out there. And I, I think that in the end, that's probably what they'll wind up getting. And um you know, I, I, I think that probably the, the if it stick with those four upper levels, we'll be able to find at least enough big markets and things to, to stabilize those teams. But I, I do feel bad for a lot of those. There's definitely going to be um, casualties in this. I didn't even think about that. And I should have because I, I think I've seen the people mention it, that this isn't just a one year thing like this has a chance to impact teams, you know, a couple of years down the road. So maybe they can come back and have enough budget for 2021. But like you said, if, if things don't go well next year, if, you know, who, who knows what next year is even going to look like, if it's going to be right. safe to go, but at the same time, even if it's fine next year and then 22, the majors are on strike or a lockout and people are like, you know, screw this. I'm, t- I'm done with baseball. That, that apathy does trickle down. And then that, that could be no fault of the minor league teams. And then people are just not coming out. They don't care that the person will be a future Indian. I'm done with the Indian, so to speak. I didn't, I, I didn't think about that. Like I said, someone did bring that up and I didn't even consider the fact that if they don't recover next year, that um, there might be more teams either that, that may not come back next year that end up could be, you know, shutting down business three, four years from now. And that makes the landscape look even differently, like from a baseball standpoint, but also economically, like you said, in the community as well. It's going to be it's going to be worth watching um, and it's, it's concerning in that respect. I get it from the ownership. You know, you look, it was what the Astros and uh, some of those teams that have been more successful recently. I think Red Sox were ones who have cut back teams. And so you know, teams follow other teams, whether it's the way they style of play or in football, like certain offenses or defenses, whatever's trending and, if they're saying, hey, we can cut teams, save money, and if we get the right people making player evaluation decisions, then we'll be even better for it anyway, I think to them came off as a no-brainer. 
these are unfortunate topics to have to discuss, but I mean, <laughs> you, have, you have tons of obviously uh, good insight on all this. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here anyway. And uh, I think this is a valuable discussion, but I also wanted to ask you yeah, it's a bummer. Some, yeah, some more positive questions. <laughs> um, you know, I've always enjoyed getting going on to Akron and, and catching up with you every time. So I kind of wanted to, you know, hear from your perspective, what it was like working in the industry and, um, just some of your memories and your favorite stories at, at stops along the way. Cause obviously, you, you know, you made a lot of different stops and, and held a lot of different positions in the industry. Well, I guess I, I'll, I'll touch on, so started in 97. So I interned in Akron the first year of the arrows and the first year of canal park. And the team was horrible. Uh, I think it was like the worst team they ever had. Uh, but Sean Casey was there to start the year. I got there after Jared Wright had, had been promoted. And Sean Casey was hitting 400 until about a week before he got called up. It was just unbelievable. Um, and so it, it was cool to get exposed to the game, exposed to a guy who you knew was a no-doubt major leaguer. And I kind of feel bad that watching him play his career, retire, and go into broadcasting. It makes you feel old. You're like, man, how <laughs> – that guy in the minors and now he's like getting long gone so <laughs> kind of a wake-up call but it, you know it was cool to see it was also interesting to get a look at, at what the indians farm system looked like then i mean you had such a talent at the major league level that you had guys like a todd betts and some of these who would have played at some point in the majors who never got a chance to move up but it, you also didn't have anywhere near the depth i mean they had guys like david miller they're trying to get you know, who was a former first round pick to play in center field and, and this guy's hitting five homers a year and hitting 260 and just not gonna do it and he's like the first round picks like you're not seeing the Lindors you're not seeing the Tristan McKenzie's you're not seeing the player development of the other um and, and because they didn't really need to they were winning at the major league level and they had kind of had a backlog and so um it, it was interesting to get a look at because how I'd reapply it later uh went to the racers as you said uh women's softball league was great look at um, the nuts and bolts, how it's done at when you have a low budget trying to get by. It was great to meet the uh, Joey Arietta and how enthusiastic and supportive she is of softball and women's athletics and really the, the camaraderie and the support for, for girls and women's sports that the whole team had. Um, and, and, you know, Crystal Bustos, who was on the team, she was uh, – they had literally found her out of Compton. I don't think she was part of the USA softball program. It was a great story. She's a, a Latin girl out, out west, and, and she – they signed her up, put her on, and I don't know where she learned the game, but she became like the biggest power hitter in almost maybe in the world of softball and came to our team, and uh, she was unbelievable. And, you know, then you're watching on the Olympics shortly thereafter and she's knocking balls out of the park. And, and, uh, <laughs> I remember we had the, the championship uh, celebration. She was such a tomboy that she hung out with her brother playing video games at, uh, um, what was the, the bar in downtown Akron that had, uh, Julian's at the time. And, uh, it, it just, it was amazing to watch someone who was so down to earth, like it, like her, you know, do those things and then going from there to the the Braves was quite a shock to see on the other side of things like coming to the Braves in 2000 I mean you're coming off the 99 World Series they'd just been in that they'd you know beaten the Indians five years before um they'd been what they were at this point um like I don't know halfway eight years or so into their run 
And it was just so surreal. I mean, you've got, they started making the playoffs in 91. I'm a sophomore in high school. And now I'm at this point, 23 years old, 23, 24 years old. And now these same people <laughs> who, who, you know, at this point are almost certain to be in the hall of fame. If they don't get hurt, there's, there's Tom Glavin, there's Greg Maddox, there's John Smoltz. But even at that point, there was Andres Galarraga coming off cancer. There was Wally Joyner who was there that year. There was uh, Kilvio Veras, Kerry Leitenberg, uh, Javi Lopez, uh, Reggie Sanders. We had like just a whole, and then the All Star Game was there in 2000, which was what a what a year to get uh, to be there as the intern. And um, and so the opening day is Galarraga coming back from cancer and he homers off like the foul pole and in just like the most dramatic way and just hair standing on your arms. You can't even really believe you're, you're there. It's kind of surreal. You're that you're the Atlanta Braves and you're here at Turner field and uh, a lot of ways, just my head spinning, which was awesome. But, you know, you kind of retrospect wish it, you know, a little more experience so things slowed down. Um, and then we go to the all-star game and my job for the all-star game, get this was to, hang out in the National League dugout or right behind the dugout until a player came out of the game and then drive them in the golf cart to the interview room under the stadium. <laughs> wow. And so I only watched a handful of pitches or plays from the game, but I have I drove, you know, Randy Johnson, the seven-foot guy with his knees up to his chest, you know, in the uh, golf cart to the interview room. And I Derek Jeter and Bobby Cox and Chipper Homerd and – um, I think there's a picture someone has somewhere me and Sammy Sosa on the golf cart on the way to the um, interview room and just head spinning from that. Um, oh, I guess I can kind of tell this story for Indians fans. It's, it's not too bad. Because <laughs> um, I know recently came up the Pat Corrales, Dave Stewart karate chop game. And I mentioned this because Pat Corrales was our bench coach at the time in Atlanta. And so we are um, the media pre the day before a party at the marquee hotel in downtown Atlanta and I'm, you know, open bar, just, it's so neat to see all these, you know, people we watched on TV milling around and talking with them and the night's getting ready to end. It's about three in the morning and I stop in the restroom and kind of do a partition. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not peeking over at <laughs> anybody's junk or anything, but like I, and, I see six foot five Rick Sutcliffe next to me. Now Rick Sutcliffe was with the Indians when I'm like eight years old. And so a little tipsy myself, I got the bravado in me to, Hey, do you remember asking about, I don't know why about that game, the Dave Stewart, Pat Corrales karate chop game. And he gets all excited and animated. And Rick Sutcliffe's like, I know all about that game. That's because of me. Couple games before, I beamed a guy from Oakland, and he came out and tried to charge him out, and I grabbed him and popped him. He's like aiming and pretending he's grabbing this guy and popping him in the face a couple times, and and then he's like, "That was all revenge and talking trash." And I'm just surreal, like it's just this Indians fan sitting there listening to Rick Sutcliffe tell a crazy drunken story at three in the morning about the Pat Krause karate chop game, and <laughs> that that was probably my favorite ex-Indian moment until the next year in 01 when we signed Julio Franco, which was the coolest thing ever. Um, you know, Julio coming, being with the Braves or I guess one of being parts of five or six seasons in the end, but he came to us in 01. We lost uh, Rico Broni had been our first baseman to start the year and he retired and we had some injuries and 
uh, what he was started his career with the Indians, I think in 83 in the Vaughn Hayes trade with Philadelphia and became a, you know, 300 hitter, a fan favorite. Anyone that went to old Cleveland stadium knows the Julio chant that echoed around. And, you know, they wound up winning a batting title and, and starting in Texas for a while. And uh, with his unique batting stance and, so, I mean, I was like seven, eight years old when Julio started with Cleveland. And um, Pat Krause, the bench coach, mentioned it was his manager. And I remember being in Bobby Cox's office and Ned Yost, the um, former Brewer and KC manager, walks in and says, hey, Julio's here. And Bobby look, looks all concerned. He's like, well, is he fat? <laughs> and just start laughing. He's like, oh, Bobby, you got to see him. And at this point, I think Julio's supposedly like 42 years old. And Julio is ripped. I mean, he looks like Herschel Walker. Like, looks like you can put your fingers between his abs. Like, I don't, if I looked like him one day in my life, I would be jealous. And Julio shows up and he is a character. He's a born again Christian at this point. He's, uh, I mean, the kind of guy who's setting an alarm for three in the morning to drink eggs and protein and, uh, <laughs> balances all out he was like my favorite character he and i would talk like religious spiritual stuff i'd ask him questions as being a more secular jewish person and being born again and we'd have some fun discussions and um i remember him you know giving him and pat crap like i feel like i'm seven years old all over again and pat yeah shout out you know f you adam we have enough assholes in this clubhouse already kind of thing and kind of endeared you he felt great and he stayed there for all that time and was just a hitting machine going the other way. And I got to see him be the oldest player in baseball history to Homer and oldest baseball player in history to steal a base and all that fun stuff. And so he, he became one of my faves. Um, I think that was a year after we had, we had Ken Caminiti before he got busted for crack. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It happens. But uh, let's see. Um you know, and I had other faves along the way, you know, guys who, who, who were, you know, great to work with the Smoltzes and the Tim Hudson's and, you know, the Eric O'Flaherty's and those guys and the Peter Moylan's and, but then there's guys who may not have been as open that way, who were great, still great guys to be around who just weren't as media friendly, like a, Marcus Giles, you know, he did the media, but kind of begrudgingly, but he was, you know, I love being around Marcus. He was a real fun guy. Um, I, I don't know if people listening to this want to check out. This is totally worth it. Google uh, Tim Hudson, Eddie Perez prank. I don't know if I've stayed today. Steer you onto that at some oh, point? told me that a couple of times. Yeah. So, you know, that'll give you an idea of some of the stuff that we planned. It's, it's, it's great. It's, it's aired on some of the blooper things in MLB network and, um, always try to keep it light. Uh, you know, it was amazing. I get all spent all 10 years with Bobby Cox and that was great. Cause when I got to Akron, uh, Edwin Rodriguez was there and Edwin was a lot like a, just almost like a Latin version of Bobby an old baseball soul who loved the uh, stories and talking about baseball history and different things, aspects of the game. And, um, was really the perfect manager to be there when they had that young Latin group come up in 2013 with Urshela and Aguilar and Jose Ramirez and then Lindor later. And um, he really took them under the wing. And I'm sure a lot of those guys turned out to be better ballplayers for it. So <clears throat> that's, uh, as far as Akron, of course, those guys, you know, 
it was tough to get to know Jose Ramirez well. I mean, not only did he get promoted, but I mean, his English at that time was non-existent. So there's only so much you can get to know somebody when you're not bilingual. Like I'm, I'm not, unfortunately. Um, that said, I, I got maybe no bigger kick than when I was able to use Google Translate to communicate with Yu Chang. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing in modern day that I could put something in that and like hand him a piece of paper and he could be like, okay. And you're like, oh my God, this is great. Like I can, I can communicate with this guy who was like a stranger and um, that, that kind of thing. Even I mean, it probably makes me sound like an old fogey, but the, the technology like that was pretty cool. Um, and, and so you got to know some of the guys. There's guys, I mean, I was bummed when Ben Heller got traded. Ben was a real good guy. Um, I think Clint Fraser gets a bad rap. Um, you know, there's other guys who I think we get to see very young that mature. Bobby Bradley, uh, Bradley Zimmer, you know, guys who grow up right in front of us. And then there's guys who seem like old souls. I mean, you've met a lot of these guys. Like, you know, Joe Sever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Joe's as good of a player leader that you would want on your team pretty much at any time. And, um, you know, Kai Tom and Tony Walters, and I know some of these guys aren't with the Indians, but there's, you know, so many guys that they have come through that I, I, I mean, I probably have an easier time picking out the two or three guys I didn't have enjoy working around or with there than it would be the ones I did. Um, which is all the credit to, you know, the system and those guys that are running it now, Carter Hawkins and company. There's one guy too. I, I want to say would have been connected through your Braves days. It was Kyle Davies was around yeah. the team, right? <laughs> Kyle Davies. That was crazy. When Kyle came back and uh, you know, we, re- we reconnected like that. Uh, there's been a couple other guys. Corey Aldridge was still playing with New Hampshire it was weird. Mike Hessman, who I don't know if you guys listening know that he's the Crash Davis of minor league baseball, the all-time minor league home run leader, who was like an 0-1 call-up with the Braves, later went to the Tigers and just basically became that triple-A masher. And he became the hitting coach at Erie. So, you know, catch up with him or um, it, it was neat to see guys that came around like that. I mean, Brian LaHare, it was interesting to see him come around with us in Akron, uh, which incidentally he won the uh, – uh, Johnny Goral bunting clinic one year, which I don't know if that's both good for that Indian's bunting class. <laughs> yeah. I think Jeremy Lucas, who was a catcher won one year too. Um, maybe that's what we see the bunting issues in the majors. Um, but there was, uh, let's see, Kyle and Kyle didn't last long down that way. He wasn't really, I mean, he was giving his career one last shot through and, and there was guys, Adam Miller, others who came around trying to, give it one more shot. And then yeah, guys who, you know, there's it, it's such a diverse, you know, eventually enough years in Akron, I spent seven there to see different career paths, people who may have been the last cut from the major league roster at camp, like a Todd Hankins who never get it back and never make it past that. And, and their career falls off. Or then you get the other guy who, comes out of nowhere like the Kai Tom who you know in some ways trying to make himself such a uh, that you can't refuse to look at him or Jose Ramirez did that um so which I'm I'm jumping over here just reminded me of a Edwin Rodriguez Jose Ramirez uh story he said once to us he said 
he pointed to Jose and he goes, now that kid is not great in any one thing, but he's very good in, in everything. I mean, and he talked about his instinct. He talked about he, – he recognized early that Jose – I don't think anyone knew Jose would have the power he did, and I think some of that's the byproduct of the way the game's played now. But he knew Jose was a major league player. He knew if you just gave that kid a chance that he was a born hitting fool. And instincts, you see it the, like Omar throwing behind runners. Um, he stole home in Akron straight, steal home in 2013. And the story goes, he gets back to third base and he tells Edwin, he's like, I think I can steal home on this guy. And Edwin asked him, why are you still here? And he stole <laughs> home the next pitch. <laughs> and it's, it's a great clip. If you see it online, he gets up and he does his little Jose strut. And this is in 2013, back to the dugout. And if you didn't know you're watching somebody who at least was going to be one day a major leaguer, not necessarily a star, you know, there's certain guys that just jump off at you that way. And, um, you know, and there's guys who blow through like, uh, Maybe the best hitter I saw in Akron come through was uh, oh the kid up in um, New York, Mets, um, Blanken, the home run champ. Oh, Pete Alonzo. Uh, yeah, Alonzo. Unbelievable. Came in, and that was when uh, Tim Tebow came into Akron and all the <laughs> fanfare with Ebo- Tebow. And, man, Alonzo just raked. Foul line to foul line, hit everything hard, the whole, the whole series. So impressive. Uh, Severino was so impressive from the Yankees when he came through. But then there's guys who aren't, and you wonder why. Like, Lucas Giolito was not good when he came through with Harrisburg and some of these, and he's made the adjustments recently to fix whatever it was. But he came in with a lot of fanfare and didn't really live up to it. Um, There's others who struggle, and there's others who figure it out. Cody Anderson came in, had a five-plus ERA and a losing record when he first came off of Carolina – league pitcher of the year to Akron and, you know, got himself promoted and, and made himself into a major leaguer. Uh, you know, there's, a, it, it's neat to see guys adjust and grow. I, I mean, I was so, when Bobby Bradley made the majors, I, I was so proud of the work that Bobby put in particularly defensively and the time that he invested, but you, there was a lot of coaches and a lot of film work and a lot of people put in time to help Bobby Bradley get to the majors. And, after a couple of years in Akron, I really got a sense of how much minor league development it took to get somebody who wasn't a Francisco Lindor to the majors, even the ones who are the relatively high picks. I mean, baseball is a hard game because it's based on failure if you're a hitter. I mean, if you fail 65% of the time, you're a Hall of Famer. If you fail 70% of the time, you're probably a Hall of Famer. And how you deal with that and, and adjust on a day-to-day basis and the frustrations that are there and how the youth, when you start on this and the travel and it, there's a lot of factors in the money and the, the distractions and some of these guys really can do it and others get, you know, it's, it's amazing. And the Indians do as well as anybody. Yeah. Tie that back to, you know, just talking about minor league baseball in general, not having that is, those are the mental part, like you said, learning to fail and uh, making those adjustments. Those are things that, you know, get lost when you don't play a season or you have less guys who have less of a chance to do that. Like a, any of those hitters you talked about coming through that, you know, had to make those adjustments or, you know, because Bobby Bradley came back to Akron. I hit a pretty good first year in Akron, but he, they ended up yeah. sending him back there. And I think they had the same thing to Shane Bieber. And it was like, well, why is Shane Bieber back here? Cause it was pretty obvious that he wasn't going to be there long either, but you just see guys make those little adjustments. And, and those are things that definitely get lost when you don't have a season or. Well, you, you know, want to certain... see, right. 
I mean, Bradley Zimmer is a fantastic example. And Bobby, when Bradley Zimmer came to us, he couldn't have hit a ball to the uh, – he's a left-hand hitter, could not have hit a ball to the left side of second base. He just was not going to be able to do it. And he got through part of the year and then really struggled. I think it was in June, they, the way they were pitching him. And he wound up turning around. Had like After struggling three, four weeks, he had a good three, four weeks and, and made the adjustments. And it was like what the Indians needed to see – to promote him and it was organic like you said over a course of season work through the struggles work his way back out and that's what they need to see in the minors like um, one of the issues when I was in Atlanta with Jeff Francoeur they always said was that Jeff was so good so fast that he got to the majors without ever failing and the problem is it's like if you're a kid that gets easy A's and all of a sudden you get into a hard class you have no study skills well it you need kids, no matter how talented they are, to fail in the minors. So they learn how to overcome and get better because at the major league level, you can't afford to wait or have, let them have that time because winning is so paramount to get better. And them failing a little bit in the minors is ideal. And and so Bradley fought through that adversity, and that was when he got promoted. And for he, I was able to official score his first hit, and it was a double, an opposite field double off the wall. <laughs> and I remember I got a chance to talk to him later on one of his rehab assignments down in Akron and asked him, I was like, how many times when you closed your eyes at night, when you had that dream of your first major league hit was an opposite field double off the wall. And he's like, never, but it, it just showed you how much work and how much time that he put in, the others put in. And um, just like a year and a half later, he's in the majors doing that. And it's just so impressive. There's guys too that I know we always, you know, you and I have talked about over the years that, like you said, struggle and, and just that and, and not making, you're not sure. Like Percy Garner was a guy I know oh, I was man. a big fan of, didn't go. And then, you know, he kind of had the whole Rick Ankiel thing and Rick Ankiel had one of those strange whining careers. And um, I don't think you weren't with the Braves obviously yet when Rick Ankiel came through there, but I mean, I'm sure, you know, yeah, it actually was. Oh, you were. So that was my first year. We played them in the playoffs in 2000 division series, and that's when Ankyo lost it. It was against us when he was throwing the balls to the screen and started drilling guys, and um, it was shocking. And in a lot of ways, it's the worst kind of thing that you can have. These guys are got to this point through all their muscle memory. It's like uh, Mark Price. How many times did he shoot three pointers or come around screens, not even looking at the hoop, but just muscle memory to do it? And same with these pitchers. You know how many times they just muscle memory and pick up the target and do some of these things. Well, if you all of a sudden start losing your arm slot and losing your confidence or whatever your yips are, that's a mental issue. You know, it's one thing if you're pointing to an arm issue, an injury, you can something target, but it, you never may, you may not get it back. If it's a, if you lose that muscle memory at that point, it's almost like if you're a hitter, like a Tim Tebow having to start over losing all those at bats that you accrue. And so now you're behind going into it if, if you lose that. And unfortunately, I mean, we saw it with Dace Kime. Uh, we saw it with a couple, you know, we see it here and there. And Ankiel, to his credit, was just that good of an athlete. He was able to hit well enough to get back into the game and, and make himself a center fielder where you didn't have to be so accurate. You could just, you know, let it fly and, and make the second half of his career to his credit. But it's so frustrating. Percy, like you said, had, you know, some of these guys came through Akron and you're like, man, they're really going to go and, they're doing great things and they don't, they don't make it. And there's others that do. And it, it, it just shows you how fickle the business are is. I mean, how many guys who are all-stars in Akron are out of baseball within one, two years, 
I think the three leading pitchers uh, win guys in Akron history, um, Matt Packer, Will Roberts, and Paolo Espino. I think only Espino ever had a cup of coffee in the majors. Yeah, it's so, a good point. guys that were on the, I think the 2012 championship team in the Eastern League too. I yeah, remember. yeah. And, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, Adam Abraham. Um, I mean, there's guys just all down the list who were, had made all-star teams or, or did stuff here and there. Todd Hankins, like we mentioned, who it, it's, it's such a, it's such a hard thing. It, it, the, the, those that are good at baseball really, really, um, and, the, and I shouldn't say these guys aren't good at baseball. This is really, really hard to play double-A baseball. It's really hard. It's just there's that little difference in, in, in there, and it doesn't always suit everybody. Some guys get promoted because they need a better strike zone. Some guys work at different things. Like I, I really, to me, double-A, I always told people to me was like college. You know, uh, um, you're not working on your fundamentals. You're working on writing term papers. You're working on composition. You work on your fundamentals at the lower levels and triple A's grad school. You know, some people need it. Some people don't. Some people go to the real world and come back and get more education. It's kind of a way station. It's the last formal level of youngsters to me is double A. And so there's not a huge level to go to the majors. If you can, be behind in the count as a pitcher and drop your all-speed pitches in for strike pretty much when you want to, there's not a whole lot of difference between you and a major league pitcher. If you can locate your fastball pretty much where you want to and, and, and throw behind in the count, your all-speed pitches, you can pitch in the majors. Same thing as a hitter. If you're behind in the count, if you can foul pitches off, if you can set pitchers up during at bats, you can go to the majors. It's just, that's not that easy. And it takes so many at bats and that's why it's Tim Tebow or a Michael Jordan can't have such a, a hill to climb. There, there's so many at bats and so much in terms of timing and picking up pitches and different little micro lessons away. And it adds up on a macro level. And that's, you know, an, an interesting point with, you know, the reduction of minor league baseball too, is the, if you have less teams, I mean, I guess you'd have less players. So you have less to worry about, but those guys, I mean, like you said, some guys you can see right away, just, work on those things and they're ready to go. But for the guys that just need the, that many reps to, to build that foundation, that's so important for them to have. Well, and some of these guys come in at such a young age, 18, 19, 20 years old, that they're not even physically fully developed. I mean, Francisco Lindor got put on the injury list in, in Akron because of his lower back. And it wasn't because he was injured. It was because he was too small. He was too young and all the wear and tear of being a shortstop and all the bus trips and all that it was a fatigue factory. Well, you look at him now and he, and he, he's look how strong and built and, and, you know, his body's filled out and won't have those problems anymore. I mean, not everyone's born like LeBron James at 18 yeah. years old. And so a lot of these guys, you know, just, they're not done developing. They pick them based on projections. You know, a lot of these draft picks based on projections of high school pitchers and based on these other things. Well, you know, if you're throwing now 18 year olds in at, at most of the low A, you know, are they going to be able to sink or float? Are they going to be able to adjust to playing against people who are several years older? It, you know, there's going to be different uh, adjustments for them, especially like the, the younger players coming from other countries that have language issues if they're not fully up to speed. It, it's it's going to cause a different dynamic in there with less teams. You mentioned Tim Tebow too, and I, I 
kind of have a new appreciation for. I, I've never really been a big fan of, of him playing because I feel like his playing time kind of cuts into the career of someone who might be more deserving, who's, put, who's been working at it a longer time. But mm-hmm. I think now and, and with you know the pandemic and all these teams being cut and, and budgets, now I'm kind of like thinking, well, a Tim Tebow might be good for minor league baseball from a marketing aspect because people do want to come see that and uh, teams are going to need, need that in the next few years. But, you know, as we're talking about guys who who need development and, and working on things, he still does take away. I mean, it's impressive that he's been able to do what he's done, to be honest, because it's not like he was playing baseball for as long as these other guys, but, and he's still hitting the ball and, and hitting for power sometimes. Right. I, I think he, I, for all those things are, are correct. Like I, I think he's really actually been pretty impressive given where he started. Um, but I think it was a situation where maybe the Mets didn't have anybody he was blocking. It, you know, it, it sometimes you just wind up getting in the right position in the right organization where, hey, we only have two or three outfielders ready for the double A level right now and for a year or two. And so, hey, we'll let it ride and see what happens. Um, sometimes you're afforded that. And then, like, I mean, we had a outfield where a couple of years we had some guys who probably, you know, they could have made decisions on sooner, like a Jordan Smith or somebody like that. But, you know, we're afforded another chance to, to keep playing because they didn't have a lot of guys behind them. Well, later, you know, now you look at last year and we had, you know, four or five, six quality outfielders come through the system. And so uh, it, it all it all really depends on, on timing sometimes. Do you think you might see more teams get creative? I mean, well, I guess it depends. It's it's more the organization has to sign them. But I wonder if we see more major league teams owning minor league teams, if they get creative with budgets and and bringing in a guy like a Tim Tebow to sell tickets, I guess. I mean, I know it hasn't hurt the Mets and there's people who are always thinking the Mets are going to bring him up just for the fact that they're going to sell tickets with him if they do. You know, I, I hate to say it. I don't know how much the major league teams, the minor league teams care about the marketing and how much the tickets they sell there make a difference to them. It, it's If you're a, a Ken Babby in the Rubber Ducks, you basically are a special events marketing company, shell company that puts on baseball games. You can put on any event with a lot of what they do. And you make your money by selling tickets and concessions, and that's where everything is. And if, as the major league people being subsidized by media and all the money they have at the major league level, I mean, I, I, I know the Braves own the majority of their minor league teams. And it was only to what a year or two ago they finally started renaming teams or even doing anything different than Braves. It's it, which was, I mean, anyone with their right mind would have done years before to capitalize on the names and the marketing and the merchandise and all that because they just didn't care. I mean, that, that when they owned the Richmond Braves, they had to make a deal with the city one year when they didn't have a lot of guys pushing the, the door that they would sign more veteran guys because the team had been bad for a bunch of years to give them a, a better shot at winning. And, uh, because the city of Richmond was like, Hey man, we stink every year. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll help you out this year. And and so I don't think it's a huge priority for those teams there. If they own the team, it's because they want to, you know, control the, every aspect of the player development and and the, whether it's from the food to the travel, to being able to monitor guys workouts, like that's, it it just keeps expenses more streamlined that way. I, I think if you get a Tebow, great. 
It sells more. I think the guys who actually don't own own MLB teams like it better. Like if you're the Binghamton Mets and they're the Rumble Ponies and they sign uh, Tebow and assign him to your team, hey, awesome. Or when he comes to Akron, Ken Babby, they love it. You know, I don't think it – you know, but I, I don't know if it behooves the major league owner much at what little they get at the minor league level. Yeah, like I said, I, I do – excuse me, I do have a new respect for that because – I, I was talking to someone from Columbus, I think a year ago and, and was putting up a, a social media post about, you know, buying tickets to come see Tebow and everyone's like, well, we don't, we're not coming to see Tebow or we don't care. And, you know, leaving the, you know, you know how social media is these days. Yeah. That's probably one of the things you don't miss about <laughs> social media, but it, the guy who was posting, it was just like, yeah, I don't care what you say on social media. Cause I have to post it because it's a chance for us to have, an incredible amount of gate to start promoting this, you know, a week or two ahead. You know what though? He, he does bring some people out. I mean, some people really, he draws people uniquely. I, I you know, I had a chance to meet him and uh, you know, I've met a lot of athletes and uh, once I got a chance to meet him, I understand like he does have a, a unique um, camaraderie vibe about him. Like even I know there's all the stuff about his Christianity type things. And, but, even aside from that, I, I was impressed by him. He looks you in the eye. He, you know, it's that, I know it sounds cliche, you know, looks, sounds like he's listening and, and pays attention and, and you can tell why people are so engaged by him. And to his credit, he's been able to do a, a lot of great things with it. So people did come out for it. Like people were excited to see him. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal, uh, even up, up in Akron. Yeah, it's just as good as having being able to announce that, you know, a, a major league player, you know, like a Nick Swisher or somebody is, <laughs> is coming to rehab or a Jason Giambi. You know, those were big events in Akron. I remember over the last several years, that's, you know, having that is, is just as good a way to uh, promote your attendance and get people to buy tickets weeks in advance. Oh, yeah. And sometimes it's not even necessarily the best player. It's just the one who has the right connection with the city. A lot of times Lonnie Chisenhall. We get a lot of people come out, even though Lonnie was a, you know, mid-level player. He would get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of ladies love Lonnie. A lot of connection when he played in, in Akron. You would get um, that, and that would happen. I mean, Jason Kipnis when he came out, it, it was a mob scene. People loved Kip, and uh, it, it sometimes those were huge boons to us. When Carrasco came, it was unbelievable when he when he was coming back from cancer and and the support he got from the Indians community, and. Um, and those are huge. And then the other flip side of that is when you get the the cool or when you get, uh, you know, Devo and Duck Dynasty and we got Corey <laughs> Feldman before he fell off the uh, rails and, uh, you know, having those guys come yeah, also draws. Yeah, I kind of wonder how that's going to impact things too with, with some t- uh, markets losing teams. Obviously, I think they're going to pick teams that um, – are a little bit farther away because I think the Indians are in a unique situation where from a rehab standpoint, they have right now three facilities within, you know, an hour and a half drive of Cleveland. They can send someone to go on a rehab assignment with, whereas not a lot of teams have that. So I'm kind of curious to see how they end up picking which facilities they keep around and which don't end up sticking around uh, based on that. Cause I know not everybody in major league baseball has those agreements in place with, you know, minor league teams that are so close. Well, I think that's part of why they want to change this around is they, they don't think that only certain 
chairs should be available at AAA. I remember one year the Marlins were like the had to have the AAA in Calgary because it was like the only affiliate in the PCL that and it was like the last seat at the musical chairs. And I, I think that's where their issue is. And I think they're going to move teams to different levels based on where they're located. That's why I hear like the what Brooklyn Cyclones would come up to the double A. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd add a couple of these independent teams that would become affiliated and they, they would redo different things to make uh, certain markets more accessible for these teams. So I think that's all part of the picture. I didn't plan to bring this up. So I'm, I, you know, you could say we don't have to go into this, but um, I was just thinking, you know, you were, this is a topic now that's going on. Obviously there's news that the Indians are going to look into changing their name and it's, it's a whole different ball game when you're talking about major leagues and, and names that have been around for, you know, a hundred years or whatever, but minor league teams obviously do change names and things like that. So what do you think? I mean, this is, they're having to go through a lot of different things to make a name change because of the, the controversy, but um, just from being part of a team that did rebrand, what kind of things do you think go into that? Well, I think first the minor leagues, like we were saying, they get their money from tickets and concessions and merchandise. So it's more important for them to rebrand, to cash in on, on money as far as that goes. Um you know, it's a tough situation. People are always – you always hear, and we definitely heard with the Rubber Ducks, the more emotional people, the people are more connected, the people are – that emotion motivates you to go to the keyboard. So the majority of the reviews and things you get on something like that are going to be negative anyway. And you can't make everyone ha- happy at, at the same time. Um, but it, it's – I get it. People are tied to what they grow up around. People get nostalgic. People – I mean, I get all those things. I grew up an Indians fan. I'm from this area um you know had a chance to official score for for them and at the world series and all these different things but i i if they will i also understand too and this maybe from being close to the game for so long I, and i think you see this from some media that cover teams for so long because the way you have to somewhat distance yourself as a fan stay objective right from a different perspective um just like if you're with the team you have to change your the way you're a fan I it's a baseball team. And if they want to, if they want to change their name, fine, they can do it. It's a, it's, it's a baseball team. You can be bummed. You can be disappointed, but in the end it's, it's a baseball team. And I also think if someone it's a, uh, if someone's so offended or it offends people enough that, and it's a baseball, again, a baseball team and they can make it better uh, and they choose to do so, then great. Like why should anyone be upset that, uh, that they, they changed it a name that, you know, now under modern guys, why should anyone be offended by a baseball team? So if they want to change the name, that's fine. It, 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 but I also get it. I also get why people, you know, the, the walk, you know, you're a little kid and you have a chief Wahoo cap or, or when we were little kids on the stadium where he's, you know, putting smoke signals out on the graphics during a one, two, three inning. And, and he's standing on top of the stadium when you walk in and you're, and you're used to see, I, I get all of it. And it's a tough situation, but, um, I'm hoping that, you know, just like the rubber ducks wore on it on folks and, and if they do it right, personally, I think some of the stuff, the look and the, some of the stuff they could do with Cleveland spiders would be unbelievable. Uh, then I think over time, you know, people want to root for their hometown baseball team and that's what will matter most is not the laundry as, as, uh, Jerry Seinfeld said, and hopefully then they can, uh, you know, go forward with just, I, I think over time, 
once you get first once you get a generation and it'd be different it doesn't grow up different winning cures things too if they go out and win something as a different name but um hopefully in the end especially in days of covid and things where things are more important issues in in the world it, it it i understand the the emotion but they'll get over it i hope yeah. I hope. As long as as long as there's baseball being played in Cleveland, because I think, you know, there's obviously attendance issues and things like that. But just thinking back to, you know, stories about how close it was that they were going to move uh, before Dick Jacobs bought them. And I'm like, well, as long as there's baseball in Cleveland, I feel like that's a good thing no matter what. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's what people need to hold on to. I think that's what this summer's taught us is, you know, we miss baseball. We miss it being part of the, the fabric of our summers and let's just be happy when it's back and enjoy it for, for what it is and hope the Indians win and root them on. And, um, but also not get people get such turned in the knots over, over decisions they don't get to make. I mean, that's kind of the hard part is, is you just sit back and watch and, and you're detached from it. So people get so frustrated, but hopefully they can put the frustration aside on, on player moves and different things and just enjoy it for what it is. I, there's always initial backlash with things like, you know, rebranding, but I'm kind of surprised that there might've been so much over the, 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 the arrows to rubber ducks, you know, the arrows were the original team when the, the team moved up from Canton to actual downtown Akron. But I don't know the way I've always looked at it. It seems like people really seem to enjoy the rebranding like there was just so much more merchandise i i would see around than i remember coming down to akron not seeing as much arrows merchandise as i do see rubber ducks well it's definitely a priority for ken and uh jeff campano who works the merchandising there and they do a great job there's a lot more available nowadays from companies and different things they can do to be fair but i mean ken and them are, and jim fan are much more engaged ownership general manager than the aganis is and, and they're going to be much more tied in the community but i think you know the the game has changed as far as that and rubber ducks i think once people see webster and then they see the akron tires and and the connection they get it and i think people you know the other name was also not something that was around since the 50s it was something that's around since 97 they were the can akron indians from 89 to 96 um you know and minor league teams do wind up changing their name i think that people are kind of okay or used to that as long as it doesn't come off as a money grab and it's happened all the time and you know i think ken had the right to change his, the team name if that's what he wanted to do and and they went uh, you know a year under arrows to look into things and decided to make the you know pull the trigger and it's been great and you know so i know it's a little different at the major league level because how you know teams are married to their names but if people really go back in the history and look particularly in the early days people had all kinds of names for the teams the blues and the naps and the boston bean eaters and the <laughs> boston bees and the, all these different names and um you know it it in some ways it's part of the fun of, of the game is the pageantry and the colors and the different logos and and, and all that and and so i enjoy it um, I'm always bummed. I know it sounds weird when there's a World Series or a Super Bowl that has teams with the same colors. I love when they have contrasting colors and it adds to the pageantry of uh, help remember the the occasion. Um, and, and so uh, I, I'm okay with it. I, I think, though, the arrows also, for what it, as sad as it is, the arrows, you know, were for the aeronautic space history of, of Ohio and uh, Judy Resnick and the Challenger. And as sad as it is, a lot of kids and a lot of youngsters who I asked didn't know about Judy and the challenger. And it unfortunately had fallen by the wayside a little bit. 
And some people even thought it, to the end that Arrow stood for A-R-R-O-W-S, like uh, tied to the Indians hmm. being an affiliate. And so, you know, what is an Arrow? You know, what is Orbit, the space cat mascot? Uh, it just gave it a little more direction. And then with the colors that, that really, you know, adhere themselves to the modern stuff, the the bright colors that the rubber ducks have along with like the blacks, they're, they're able to put out a really cool line of, of uh, merch and way more engaged with the downtown. I, I think um, we were surprised when Ken took over the team, how much work needed to be done to repair relationships, both civically and with, the major corporations in Akron, it, there was almost no relationship or, or things have been burnt or you t- contacted season ticket holders who would never hear from ticket reps. And it, there was a lot of work that had to be done. And a lot of uh, companies showed uh, faith and invested in what Ken and Jim were pitching and, and it worked out. And uh, hopefully once they get that traffic situation down there, which has been a mess oh. uh, and I heard they're almost through that, then, then they'll, be able to flourish i know they have some great ideas and some fun stuff planned and that they weren't able to use this year and uh um you know so they should be ready to go for next year and it's such a great facility and you know they have the movie nights and all these different events on the field for families you know that they i'm sure they can socially distance while doing and um you know it's just a shame they won't be able to put on any games or i i don't think they don't even have the camp right the the, the camps could be at, at uh Lake County? Yeah, yeah. There was talk yeah. about being Canal, but I think they're sticking to Lake County. Yeah, so, you know, that's a bummer for them that they could have maybe done something revenue-wise with that in some way, shape, or form. So, um, it's going to be t- – it's a tough year down in Akron, but I think it's a big enough market and, you know, solid enough ownership group that they'll be one of the ones that, that make it through this. But like you said before, there's going to be a lot that don't. Yeah, that is unfortunate. I'm sure – you know, I know you were an intern when they just started, but I'm sure there was just a world of difference from – you know, when you were an intern to coming back and, and 20, at the end of 2012, before the 2013 season, I'm sure there was just so much change there. Yeah, no, it, it but yeah, and you know, it's funny is the biggest thing that you can put in 7 million of his own dollars and the new picnic areas and the new restaurant and all the new, you know, extreme foods. But I thought the biggest thing was painting the batter's eye, just the giant batter's eye, which had been faded, had chips of paint, it's something you see so predominantly when you're sitting in the stands and just recovering that with the new uh, coat of paint really just gave the stadium a new look and really helped when everything was put together uh, and, and reshaped the team. I think the relationship with uh, the mayor at the time and the Aganises was, was non-existent. He was threatening to move the team. Um, if you couldn't find owner, uh, uh, you know, a buyer and, you know, Ken recognized that he had a, a great situation with where the affiliate, the location, the age, the way the stadium is held up. Um, the city was eager to get a new owner in there and they did a good job uh, changing that over. But it took a lot of work to to reconnect that and um, get people used to the little big league style instead of the mom and pop style that minor league baseball had been done in before. Yeah, the business has, has definitely changed for sure. Uh, to kind of wrap things up, you know, to go full circle here, you started off by talking about being an official scorer. So um, I think some people might be wondering, how do you, how do you get into being an official scorer? And what do you, what do you enjoy about that? And, and what are some things about that position that people probably don't take into account when decisions are made? Well, um, having, after all the, I know you went over the experience, but with the 10 years in Atlanta, with the first six years, we made the playoffs. I got a chance to know uh, the late Phyllis Marriage and Katie Feeney 
who ran the National League and American League, ran oversaw the umpires and the official scores, and because uh, they always were at the postseason events. And when I got to Akron, uh, there's usually three scores per team. An opening was available for the Indians. They needed like an emergency person to cover three to five games a year, and they generally vet the person, make sure that person knows enough about baseball, has enough history, whether it's coaching or um, media or, or other background to do it. And since they knew me and they knew my time with the Braves, they were okay with me doing a handful of games because it was kind of short notice to get approved. And I guess I, I did well enough to, to stay on board, um, which is quite the, quite the contrast because I was the person on the other side as the media person who would appeal calls and argue with official scores when I was in Atlanta. Uh, some of whom are my colleagues now, which is funny. Um, but it, you, uh, what I think fans don't realize is you're sometimes stuck by the way the letter of the law is like any other judge of, of something. And sometimes you have to go with something because the way it, it was called, it's, it's tough too with some of the metrics now, you know, some of those judgment calls, I, I look at it, it's my responsibility to know the rules. I, you know, I got to make calls within the judgment of the rules. There's going to be times that come down where it's a straight judgment call. And then if a team or fans disagree with my judgment in that situation, that's fair. Um, I'll always explain why or where I came to. I think I've learned you don't watch replays in, in slow-mo. You know, the game happens in, in real time, in real motion. You know, you have to uh, watch how they adjust to things in real time with the hops, the speed of the ball, um, you know, is it, is an exit velocity of 105 miles an hour make a difference if it's hit on a Sunday hop right at a shortstop? Or does it make a difference, you know, how far a guy has to run? There's some very cool, we've had some official scorers meetings in New York and we have a, a book, Some they've done some case books and they've done some example stuff. They've gotten really, really uh Laurel Preeb and his group and Corey Schwartz have done a great job getting um, new resources out there. And so there's a thing about like if a guy's at, at shortstop and, and usually two to three steps is about a normal range. Cause once you get past two steps and you start having to backhand or you start having to reach and you start having to take into account extra effort aspects of plays. And that's really the standard is extra effort standard. Did that person exceed extra effort to make that play? Um, but sometimes you're locked into certain calls or you're locked into certain things, or, you know, the, I, I know some scores would love to have a team air for ones that like drop between three guys staring at each other. Um, but you don't, you know, that's a base hit, you know, it just has to be that way. And questions when balls get lost in the sun, if a guy never sees it versus a guy getting a read on it and losing it, is that difference? And, um, you know, getting a sense when a guy, should or shouldn't make the catch when they have a read on the ball. Like if you can see the guy's, you know, uniform chest when they're running back on a ball, then they have a read on it. Whereas if you don't see their name on the, the name on the front, then they're just hauling ass to get back to try to make a play. So there's different little nuances in the game um, that you have to just kind of keep your eye on that that's just different. And, you know, the pressure's on you, you give the wrong call and Sure, you get to hear Tom Hamilton mention your name, but it's not the way you want. It's right. one of those like an offensive lineman where you're getting called for holding if your name's mentioned. And uh, so, yeah, they very rarely you make a call as official score, and they're like, "That's a heck of a call by the official score." And that's that's not something that's out there. And so, you know, you got to be have thick skin, and you got to stand by your your convictions. But I also think you can't be 
you, you know, bigger than there's a lot of people who've watched a lot of baseball more than you have. And so when they, you know, a clubhouse or a, an official uh, with a team says, Hey, would you mind taking another look at this or consider this on the play? I have no problem. I always will because there's always things I don't see or, or, or think of and take into consideration. And have I changed p- calls? Yeah. Cause sometimes there's like a pressure to get a call out there. You know, though we haven't heard, we haven't heard. Okay, when you make a call, and then you start thinking about it over the next inning or two, and you're like, "Gosh, I think I made that call wrong." And then you have access to a replay, and you look at it a couple times, and you start thinking to yourself and and talking to some folks and what their thoughts are, and then you you, you sometimes you make a decision to change it. But um, it's never, you know, nefarious. I'm able to divorce myself from being a fan. I, I don't look at it at all as to which teams are playing in effect. I, I strictly just go by what's out there. It's it's an honor to be part of it, uh, to be considered as one of the scorers. It's a very tough knit, like you said, not something that gets posted uh, on the job board and not something that comes open all the time. I mean, there's a wide swath of people. There's people who have been doing it for 40 years. There's people who have been doing it for five years. There's coaches. There's ex-teachers. There's a couple XPR guys like myself. Uh, they do a lot of journalists who've retired, like uh, Guy Kurtwright, who retired from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a scorer. Uh, college sports information, people like uh, Mike Stamus at Georgia Tech, who's one of the scorers down in Atlanta. Um, and so it's it's a small thing to get in, and it's quite an honor, and I, I'm thrilled we're going to uh, work remotely here this season. Uh, but we have new tools that they gave us, so we can see all the different replays that they give us on the broadcast, like six, seven replays. We can have advanced metrics now that we know – um, based on what the hit went and how fast in the spin, how often that's been a hit, um, how often that's been caught, what's the chances on things, exit velocities. We have all these, all this data now, which doesn't necessarily make imply the call, but now gives us more information when trying to consider a call. So it, it's very cool. We'll be uh, using Slack to communicate with uh, the people in the press box, um, but uh, it'll be different, but it, it's cool. It doesn't like it's going to be a unique season to do all that. And I think the other thing two people probably don't think about is that you have a lot of coaches or managers, especially in the minor league level. Um, and I'm sure at the major league level as well, that always are coming up to you, whether you're whatever you're doing after the game to to talk to you about that. And I'm hoping that with everything going on this year, everybody, obviously there's going to be no minor league baseball, so it's, it won't be an issue there, but I'm just hoping everybody is a little bit more understanding of, of things when they, you know, make them to reach out about changing a call. Cause I know that can get really uh, tough at times. <laughs> well, the minors is tough. You have folks who are different ages, different exposures, uh, coaches, are, their whole life is based on trying to get guys promoted and numbers to help support their careers. And, and they're also, you know, a lot of times ex players and they're very competitive and that doesn't go away. And so uh, they're competitive on getting the calls and that, and I understand it. Um, generally from the majors, what they can do is they re- communicate with nowadays with the PR person who just comes and asks you to re- take another look. There's, they keep the distance away, um, from the scores for, for that reason. Uh, I mean, you can talk to them at a different time. There's like, there's more of a separation there, but different minor leagues have different policies as far as communication. Sometimes they'll bring scores down, which I think is a little crazy to the clubhouse. Uh, sometimes they'll, you know, just get them on the phone or work through an intermediary, like often in Atlanta, I would be the intermediary. I'd talk to the clubhouses and, and hear what they had to say about a call. Then I would talk to the scorer, explain what the clubhouse was uh, their issue with it. We'd take a look at the replay. 
you know, I'd still, even though it was a score in the majors, you know, I'd still let, I mean, it's there, they're there to make the call. Maybe if I see something, I point it out while they're watching it and relay that to them. But yeah, it's, it, people are very competitive and it's one of the worst things when you see something and a call is just missed at the minor league level and you know, you're going to hear it from the, the clubhouse downstairs. Just not everyone delivers things in a uh, tactful way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here, here's the hope and those are, not not an issue given the circumstances of 2020 if uh, a baseball season does manage to go off without a hitch. So one of the things I, I know we have some people who, who listen to the podcast who are interested in working in sports or um, have family that are. So do you have any advice for anybody who might be looking to break into the field, whether it's baseball or anywhere else? Because obviously, you know, you worked in um, high school football and, and right. as well. Well, I would say, you know, you're going to have to – stick by it. I, I think if it's what you want, go for it. Don't be afraid to move. Don't be afraid to while you're young and have some flexibility until life interrupts and, and life interrupts in a lot of ways, whether it's financially, family, who knows what, but if you have an op a freedom or some flexibility is don't be afraid to go for it and don't compromise in that way. If your job, if you want to get a job as a PR person, don't take a ticketing sales job just because with the sports team, because what will happen is you'll get uh, typecast or work two, three years as a ticket salesperson, and then a job will open in PR, and then you've been selling tickets for two, three years, and someone else will get that job. It's worth when you're young, holding out, trying to get what you want, persevering through it. It may take two, three internships. You may do an internship more than you want, but that internship may open doors or open things to other leagues, other situations. I've had interns go various sports, various leagues, various things. It, it, um, and you just got to stick with it. I think I would tell people to read as much as they can, write as much as they can, even if it's just for their own, um, to, so they can work on their writing, get feedback on their writing. The writing makes you stand out today. A lot of young folks don't write well. Um, I'm surprised, too, the lack of <laughs> particularly baseball because they were there, real baseball history knowledge. There's like knowledge of the last couple of years or big events, but there's not like that appreciation. There's not a lot of the young folks that covered on the press box that would know much about Willie McCovey or know anything about Tony Perez or, you know, the gas house gang probably wouldn't even know who that was. And that was kind of disconcerting in some ways, but, um, you know, writing the read everything you can from great, you know, journalists and all those kinds of things, if you want to work in it, because most of those fields involve that. And then, networking you know getting yourself out there contacting people calling folks up that are in the field even if they don't have jobs and ask them how they got you know if they would meet with you for 15 minutes and sit down with them and and just ask questions as much as you can to learn find out how they got there um you know if you make a positive impression then it's one person now who knows if a job opens someone that they can refer it's it's um it, it's always trying to, you know, it, someone says the books, the, I would take it as, uh, someone said the most important thing is the books you read and the people you meet, the books you read, allow you to have the knowledge, the people you meet, allow you to have the opportunity. And that's half the battle. That's why this unpaid internship, you've seen me mention on Twitter, where a lot of people get started in minor leagues of sports is, is garbage is because it only allows people in a certain position of financial independence, whether through their own or parents or other stuff to get started. 
in the business where at, at the low levels and you got to get the internships to have a chance. And uh, that, that precludes a lot of people and um, makes it, you know, a very white industry. <laughs> uh, so hopefully they'll come up with a way to do it. It doesn't have to mean people get paid overtime, but just a stipend or, or anything to help people uh, have a chance. But it, it, you know, it's a grind, but you have to love it and you have to love um, the, the opportunity cost in that finance aspect and our ass hours worked aspect, but there's a lot of cool things you get to do and people to meet and, and different things in that as a result. But, you know, intern, 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 network, read and write a bunch. Um, and don't settle. I would say those are, those are the keys. I'm glad you brought up the, the unpaid internship thing as someone who did a lot of those and uh, wishes that was not the case right now. I really do hope they find a way to, to make that a little bit better so you can find the most talented people, maybe not, but people who have the the flexibility to do those kinds of things, like you said, so I think that does build in a certain level of, of flexibility and maybe, you know, keeps the best well, candidate from being the actual selection. Well, you'll never see the change at the majors if you don't see the change at the minors and people, you know, see what they, you know, uh, you're not going to be apt to go into sport as a minority representative of something and feel like you want to be out of sorts, you want to feel like you, you know, you can fit in and I'm not saying it's got to be all way or one or nothing, but you know, a nice mix of stuff. It also, you know, makes other people see mentors and others achieve in that industry and gives other kids hope for different things. And, and there's nothing, especially with how diverse athletes are, you know, especially in baseball and, and it, it can't but help. That's that's a really good point. I'm I'm not, you know, surprised you're aware of that and and how you feel about that as well. After you know knowing you for a couple of years, and the other thing you brought up too about knowing the history of the game. That's one of the things that I always appreciated going on to Akron is that you knew your history just from being around it, and even before that, growing up as a fan. I think that was one of the parts that always made you especially good at your job. <laughs> Well, I'm old. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but things are different then. You don't, you, it's true though. You now you can watch YouTube highlights or the best this or best that or, or highlight type things. And it keeps you more modern. I had, you know, records of great calls or I had to watch this week in baseball or baseball bunch or, you know, different movies or the old black and white home run derbies. Like you, everyone was everything in all the books, everything was history. And I just think that the focus now is so, so recent and that plays into the um, interests of the younger people coming up. Yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of that sometimes too. So when I would come down to Akron, I always felt like I was learning something new sitting in that press box. They need more historical Buzzfeed lists, I guess, instead of just, you know, top 10 current or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, maybe someone should work on it. Maybe there's an untapped industry. I don't know if anybody's reading that as much as they're reading top 10 list about celebrities, but someone, I'm sure there's an audience for that somewhere. Maybe, maybe. Unfortunately, <laughs> they're, they're almost all old or gone. It's, yeah, it's going to have to be a book. Probably. It seems like it at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can say from everybody who has spent time in the press box in Akron, it will not be the same uh, going down there without you. I know I'll miss it for sure. And, I know, you know, you're enjoying the the different hours and not uh, having that stress in the long hours, but we will definitely miss you in Akron. You were always one of the, the best parts of going out to cover that team. 
Well, I appreciate it, Justin. Hopefully he'll be back in a press box or seeing folks in a, in a different capacity at some point when these games get going. Yeah, good luck scoring this year. And, uh, you know, I hope I run into you at a baseball game whenever uh, it's safe to be out in public again. <laughs> Sounds good. Take care and uh, good luck with uh, the podcast and everything you got going on. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. No problem.